0: There was an article written earlier this year in Discover Magazine that asked the question, why are Americans getting unhappier? Now, this article was reporting on something called the World Happiness Report, which uh, if you're like me, uh, you've never heard of a report like this before, but I guess apparently it has been existing for decades now. Well, according to this article, this uh, report shows that there are, been a, there's been a 50% increase in unhappy Americans over the past 20 years. Now, this data might not be overly surprising because the past year, uh, this past September 11th marked 20 years since the day when a group of terrorists hijacked several commercial airline planes and crashed them into the Twin Towers in New York City, along with the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., killing tens of thousands of people, which began the war on terrorism and all the heightened security measures. We also, as we were rebounding and recovering from that, as a nation in in 2009, we experienced a great recession, which was the result of a housing market crash and a bunch of bad loans and foreclosures and bank bailouts. And that recession made a huge impact on Chicago and even right here in many in the neighborhood and even many in our church. Those two big events are still affecting many Americans today. And then we all had this global pandemic in 2020 that has been a very real and present crisis that we've all faced and been impacted by over the last 18 months or so. And so It might not be surprising that happiness among American adults has been on the decline ever since the 1990s, that even though income wages are at an all-time high, more houses and bigger houses are being built, the number of houses in this very neighborhood that are being remodeled and renovated are increasing every day, and the number of cars that are on the road increases, individual wealth is increasing, but happiness isn't. Could it be that we are, we, we've wrongly bought into the thinking that, you know, the more we have, the happier we'll be? The, the more house I have, the happier I'll be. The more money I have in my investments, the happier I'll be. The more promotions and advancement I get at work, the vacations that I go on, the nicer cars that I, I drive, the more things that I have, the happier I'll be. Well, this morning we are going to kick off a new sermon series in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, and I want to invite you to grab your Bible with me this morning or you can open that Bible app, but join me if you will in Ecclesiastes chapter one Ecclesiastes chapter one. Over the next several weeks we are going to be exploring together what Ecclesiastes has to teach us about life in this world, what success is and what it 's not, what has what 's meaning and a lasting significance, and what doesn't have those things now ecclesiastes might be a bit of an odd choice of something to study because many people view this as the most depressing book in the entire bible like you know great jason i mean we're already experiencing all these depressing things in our world today can't we find something that would be a little bit more upbeat a little bit happier to look at i mean some of you might even be familiar with some of the phrases of ecclesiastes like vanity vanity all is vanity. Everything is meaningless. Or, and, and, and if you just kind of skim over the surface, it sounds very depressing. But I think that it's good for us to spend some time in difficult passages because there, as we wrestle and fight to understand God's revealed truth, there is a sweet reward waiting for us. And I think that that's what we're going to find here as we study the book of Ecclesiastes together. Now, maybe you've read through the book of Ecclesiastes before, and maybe you uh, did a little bit of reading this past week in preparation for our study, and you thought, wow, I mean, this is a very cynical view on life. I mean, it it sounds like somebody who has been kind of successful, they've accomplished some things in life, now they're kind of in their mid-40s, and they're going through this life crisis, midlife crisis, and they're thinking, is this all that there is? But I think that what we'll find is that the author of Ecclesiastes gives us a very realistic picture of life here in this world under the sun. It's real. It's raw. He's honest about the troubles of life apart from God. But I think that we'll also see that Ecclesiastes commends and it even defends a life of faith in God. And it does this by showing how grim and how hopeless the alternative is. You either live for the Lord or you live under the sun. You either live for the Lord or you chase after the wind. The author of Ecclesiastes is saying in very vivid illustrations and details, here is what life in this world looks like. Here is what life apart from God looks like. And and so throughout this book, we find false hope exposed so that we might see that we were created by God and therefore we belong to him. We shouldn't rebel against him, but rather we should fear him and obey his commandments. We need to trust and not in everything that is under the sun, but we need to trust and we need to learn to live in the Lord. We need to learn how to set our hope in Christ alone. Well, hopefully you've been able to find Ecclesiastes uh, by now, but we're going to begin in chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 11 verses here as we kind of introduce this book here this morning. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1, you can follow along. Here is what we read. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all of the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and round goes the wind and on the on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been ...is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it has already been in the ages before us, therefore, uh, sorry, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Ecclesiastes is one of the books of the Bible that we call wisdom literature. Now, the the book of Proverbs is another one of those wisdom literature books, and Proverbs is so practical. You, You can easily turn to the book of Proverbs while you're drinking your morning coffee, And you can see some clear, practical wisdom for your life and some good advice. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature just like Proverbs, but it's a little bit different experience as you're reading it. I've heard it compared to driving on the other side of the road. And so maybe you've gone to another country or something like that and you've had to learn how to drive on the opposite side of the road than we do here. Or maybe you come from another country, and when you came to the United States, you had to switch. You had to learn how to drive on the other side of the road. And it's a different point of view. It's a different experience. You will still steer. You're, you're still oppressing the gas. You're still using the brake. But it's a totally different perspective on driving than what you're used to. That's kind of what Ecclesiastes is like. It's like driving on the other side of the road when you compare it to books like the Proverbs. Uh, friends, we find wisdom in Ecclesiastes. It is a journey through 12 chapters that repeats this idea that life under the sun is vanity. Uh, chapter, uh, 12 chapters of unanswered questions, of poetry, of proverbs mixed in. And at the end of the journey, in chapter 12, we finally get some wisdom from the throne of God and we receive a call to fear him. And to obey him. And so that's kind of the big picture of this as we're beginning this journey through this book together. But I want to give you just a little bit more background here that I think it's important for us to understand. As you look there at verse 1, you see that the author goes by the title Preacher. Preacher which refers to someone who is in front of an assembly, in front of a group of God's people gathered together, kind of like what we're doing here today. So who is this preacher? Well, verse 1 goes on to say that he is the son of David, king in Jerusalem, which kind of narrows it down to one person, right? If you know your Bible history, you know that this is referring to King Solomon, which was the third of Israel's kings. And so this book is a collection of lessons that Solomon learned throughout his life. Just a little bit about Solomon here. But when King David died, he handed the kingdom over to his son, to Solomon. And God gave Solomon wisdom as he ruled over Israel. Under his reign, there was peace, there was prosperity that was unlike anything else that Israel had experienced before that. There was unity. Solomon was uh, known among the nations for his wisdom. And you can read of some of his wisdom in the books, uh, book of Proverbs, in um, Song of Solomon, and even here in Ecclesiastes. But if you follow the story of Solomon, rather than walking in the wisdom of God, rather than walking in the fear of the Lord and his commandment, Solomon took another path. He took a path of disobedience, a path of foolishness and sin against God. And he ended up giving himself over to riches and to greed He gave himself over to lust and to idolatry and idol worship. He disobeyed God. He married all of these foreign wives and he started worshiping their foreign gods rather than worshiping the one true God. And in short, he ruined his kingdom. Now, he's older at this point and he looks back on all of the foolishness, all of this sin, and it's like he is trying to reason with people to choose wisdom. To trust and obey and follow the Lord. So that's a little bit about the background of Ecclesiastes. But as we look at these first 11 verses in chapter 1, there are two points that I want to, to, you to get out of this. Two major things here. The first is in verses 2 and 3 that we see this major theme that's repeated throughout the book. That everything is vanity. Vanity. Again, here's what we read in verse 2. It says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. There's this underlying theme throughout the book that says that everything in this world, everything that is under the sun is vanity. We read this in chapter 1 and verse 2. We see it again at the end of this book in chapter 12 and verse 8. But everything that's in between these two verses is explaining why the preacher has said that all is vanity. Now, this word vanity is used 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's an important word. It's an important word for us to understand what it means because saying that everything is vanity doesn't mean that it's all meaningless, it doesn't mean that life is just pointless. In Hebrew, the word vanity literally means breath or a vapor. And so the preacher is saying that everything in life is like a breath, it's like a vapor, it's like a mist that is here one minute and then gone the next. Now, we love uh, scented candles around our house, and I I think it's uh, especially something that we love to to light candles in the fall and in the wintertime, and if you come to our house during that time of the year, you'll probably smell uh, the burning of a scented candle somewhere around the house, and I hope you enjoy the smell when you're when you're there. But occasionally, also, um, I'll burn some candles in my office. And this candle is a candle from my office. My kids gave it to me, and um, I'll light this candle. And I, I want it to smell good. It, it does smell good, I think. And and then um, you go and and if you've ever blown out a candle before, what what do you have? Well, you blow the candle out, right? <sighs> And you have smoke that's coming up from it, right? And if you're close enough, you can smell the smoke. You can, you can even see the smoke. But um, if you try to grab some of that smoke, right, what happens? You can hold on to it for a second, but it's gone right out of your fingers. It's elusive like that. It's there one minute, but then it's gone and, and it's not seen the next. And the book of Ecclesiastes is speaking of the fleeting, of the vanishing nature of life. And I don't think that it's suggesting that there's no meaning to anything. It's not promoting cynicism here, but rather it is promoting faith and trust in God. But, but, but it's pointing out the very real reality of life, that it is fleeting. In the New Testament, James does the same thing. In fact, James chapter 4 and verse 14 He says this, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The big point of Ecclesiastes is that life is fleeting. Now, what's interesting here is that the preacher of Ecclesiastes doesn't say, well, some things in life are vain. No, he talks about all things in life being vain. That that every aspect of life is fleeting and momentary, nothing but a breath. It's all one moment here and then gone the next. So nothing lasts. Your beauty, your strength, your intellect won't last. Your uh, competency and uh, capabilities, your memory, your health, your achievements and your accomplishments, they won't last. Your very life won't last. In fact, that's kind of hovering over the entire book of Ecclesiastes, the, the fact that all of us are going to die, that death is going to take away everything that we have in this life. It's going to take away, uh, it's going to take us away from relationships, it's going to take us away from uh, possessions, it's going to take away the very memory of our lives. In fact, in just a few generations, we will be forgotten. You see, the point of this is to make much of God, that death is kind of like this needle that bursts our bubble, that, that it bursts our bubble in a good way because it causes us not to put our hope and our trust in ourselves or in this life, but in God. Again, the message here is that everything in life is short-lived. And this word vanity here speaks of the futility of life. So the author of Ecclesiastes is going to take the rest of this book, the next 12 chapters, to explain what he means when he says, all is vanity. Now in verse 3, we see the first argument for this theme. And the first way that the preacher is going to address this vanity is through work. Look at what he says in verse 3. What does man gain by all of the toil or the work? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He asks this question and he says, what do I gain from all of my hard work? I put in all of this time, all of this effort, but what's the end result? The end uh, end of my life, what do I have to show for everything that I've done? What do I have left? Am I really accomplishing anything of significance? Now, He already knows the answer to this question, but he uses this question to make a point that people gain nothing from their work under the sun. People gain nothing from their work under the sun. Now, does this mean that your job is meaningless? No, I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I don't think that that's what this means. A crucial, critical part of interpreting this book is understanding this phrase, under the sun. And the phrase under the sun, it's repeated 29 times here in this book. And it refers to living life in this world without God and without taking God into account. Living life under the sun is living life as if this life is all that there is. Living as if there is no eternal God. Living life under the sun is living as if there is no eternal life. The author of Ecclesiastes is looking at life here in this world and he's saying... If this is all that there is in life, that you get up, you eat breakfast, you commute to work, you work all day, you come home, you do a few things around the house, you go to bed and you get up in the next morning and do it all over again. If that's all that there is to life, then life is empty and your work doesn't really matter. And that's what he is trying to say here. Now, <clears throat> keep in mind that what Ecclesiastes refers to as under the sun was once Something that was perfect. In Genesis, God made the heavens and the earth. And he, he said that it was good that everything was perfect. In, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they, they be, before they had sinned, they lived in this perfect fellowship with God. Perfect fellowship with all of creation. But the moment that they sinned against God, the moment that they disobeyed and broke his covenants and broke his commandments, the moment that they rejected his love, they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden and from that moment on, them and every other human being after them, all of creation has been in need of redemption. In that moment, everything under the sun became cursed. It was tainted by sin. It became in need of redemption. And that picture is what Ecclesiastes is giving us. An image of the fallen world, that what life is like, lived under the sun. If we live life, with a horizontal view, that life is just about what we see right here in front of us. We wake up, we go to work, we come home, we go to bed, we get up the next morning, we do it all over again. If life is simply all just about that, we gain nothing. But friends, life is more than that. And what Ecclesiastes does is it points out, that, out what is vain in order to help us discover what is not vain. And so you can live life for what's under the sun or you can live life for the one who rules over the sun. You can either live life for the power of this present world or you can live your life submitted to the power of God that, is create, that created you and created this world. There's this question in verse 3 that says, what does man gain by all of the toil at which he toils under the sun? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. Jesus would ask a very similar type of question in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 26 when he said, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man gain, give in return for his soul? Friends, if we live for this world and the things of this world, we gain nothing. And in fact, we forfeit our very souls. There's nothing left. And so the question That each of us needs to ask ourselves today is this, how am I living my life? We can either live for this life in this world, we can live for life that's under the sun, or we can live for the one who rules over the sun. In the New Testament, uh, Jesus makes it very clear that you can't serve two masters, you can't live both ways. He says that we're either going to serve God or we're going to serve money. We're either going to serve him or we're going to serve this present world. We're going to either serve and live for what's under the sun or we're going to live for the one who rules over the sun. Well, Let's uh, take a, a look at what's under the sun and what work under the sun is like. The rest of this passage helps us to understand what work under the sun is like. Verses 4 through 11, we see a choice that we have to make here. The second point in our outline here this morning is this, that you can work under the sun or you can work in the Lord. You can work under the sun or you can work in the Lord. The heart of this uh, this opening passage here in Ecclesiastes deals with the question, why work? And I think that it, it, it jumps into this idea of work because work has... Such a huge part to play in our lives, uh, such a huge part of how we spend our time. And by work, I'm talking about anything that you are responsible for, anything that you spend a good part of your time doing. I work at St. Paul's Bible Church. You might work for the city, or maybe you work for a school, or maybe your primary occupation involves taking care of your kids at home, or or, or maybe your aging parent or a spouse. Or maybe you are a student in school, and that's your primary job. But whatever it is that you spend most of your time doing, that is your work. And I want to be clear here: that, that work is not a bad thing. That 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 that. that um, they were caring for uh, the garden in in uh, Eden. That's what Adam and Eve were doing. They were caring for the garden. They were caring for the animals. They, they had work to do, and that work was a good thing. Genesis chapter 1, um, they are working, and yet it doesn't take long before all of that changed. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they're sinning against God, and they... they They um, sinned against the God who created them, the God who had created all of the creatures uh, of this earth, and there was then a curse that was placed on the the world because of sin that that everything is affected, uh, including work in a negative way. In fact, Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, it says this, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken... For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So often work is it's disappointing and frustrating to us. Work can, can be a place where we experience stress and anxiety because work is uh, has been affected by sin. It's been affected by the fall. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes gives us this picture of what work is like under the sun. What work is like when we put our hope in the things of this world. He gives us these examples and the examples can kind of be broken down into two categories, nature and human experience. Verses four through seven are examples of nature and verses eight through 11 are examples of human experience. And so these examples are used to answer this question, what do you gain from all of your work under the sun? And the answer is we don't gain anything, we just replace it with something else. Look at what he says here uh, beginning in verse four, verse four, he says, a generation comes, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Essentially, what he's saying is that the earth remains, that the earth isn't going anywhere, but people come and go. And, and now we often say this most of the time as a generation comes and a generation goes. But the preacher here says it the other way around. He says a generation goes and then comes. And I think that this is intentional because he's emphasizing that one generation replaces another. You see, there is nothing that is gained. There's just replacement that people die and people are born. And there's this ongoing cycle that keeps happening. In verse 5, he moves from the earth to the sun in order to make the same principle. He says the, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place when it, where it rises. So just like people, the earth goes round and, and there's this going and there's this coming and the, uh, the sun in a very similar way has this repetitive cycle. This word hastens here means to hurry, to kind of pant after something. That the sun is just kind of panting with this exhaustion as it hurries back to where it needs to be so that it can rise again the next morning. And what the preacher is saying here is that he, he's helping us to feel the weariness of it all. That the sun rises and the sun sets, it goes around and around in this vicious cycle, and it doesn't really gain anything. It just ends up right back where it started. That there's this repetitive motion that doesn't go anywhere, just like life. In a similar way, verse 6 says that the wind blows to the south and uh, goes around to the north. Round and round goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. You would think that the wind could just go wherever it wants to go, right? But it doesn't. It follows this same path, and on its circuits, the wind returns, Again, the point here is that nothing is gained. Verse 7, he uses this example of the water cycle. And he says, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. I'm sure we've all seen a diagram like the one that we're going to put up on the screen right now. And you probably saw this when you were like in fifth grade science class or something like that. But it's just the water cycle. There's these streams and they flow into the ocean. The water goes into the ocean. The sun evaporates the water up into the clouds. And then it comes back down in rain again. It goes into the streams. And this cycle is just repeated over and over again. If you went to the Indiana dunes or maybe you went to the beach on Lake Michigan this summer. And you saw that it was relatively the same as it was last summer. I mean, there was sand and there was water and even the water levels didn't really change much from one year to the next. And and that's the point, that that everything just kind of stays the same. And so if nature doesn't gain anything from all of its toil, all of its work, if the sun and the rivers and the wind doesn't gain anything, it doesn't have anything to show for all of their work, then what hope do we have in accomplishing anything in our work? I, I mean... In many ways, our days are just repeating themselves. We wake up in the morning, we eat breakfast, we get full. We go about our day, we get hungry again, so we eat lunch and we get full. We, we maybe have an afternoon snack, but we get hungry again, and so we go home and we eat supper, and, and, and then maybe we have like a little cheat snack before we go to bed at night. But th- then we get up the next morning and we do the same thing all over again, day after day, month after month, uh, year after year, and it's just this repetitive cycle. And when you think about it in relationship to work, there's, there's always more work to be done. We, we, we think that we gain something with our work, but really we, we're just caught in this repetitive cycle. We work to get things done, but there's always more to do. Many of you know that I love to make checklists and so, I like to have this checklist of all these things on this piece of paper, and then i 'll I'll, I'll check them off when i 'm done and i 'll scribble them out and and, and you know I, I, get the, I get it all done that whole piece of paper is all checked off and, and I finally get it done, so I crinkle it up and I throw it away. But as soon as I throw one piece of paper away with all the checklists done i 've got five more checklists piled up on my desk a- a- and The more I work, the more I feel like i 'm behind and just adding and new things to my checklist every day, and even the things that I accomplished one day, the next day I have to do it again. And that's the point of Ecclesiastes, that we feel this, that this is how tiresome life under the sun can be. Now, we see this in nature, but we see this in our personal experience as well, that people are always looking and listening, and yet our eyes and our ears are never satisfied. Look at verse 8. It says, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eyes are not satisfied with seeing, nor the ears filled with hearing. You will never reach the point in life where you have seen or heard it all. Now, I know that sometimes we say these, these phrases like, I've seen it all or I've heard it all, but that's not really true. Especially in our digital age, there are things that are new that we see all the time. There are things that we hear all the time that are new. And, and we, we have this deep desire to experience that more and more that we can't even get enough. That, that we're never satisfied. Verse 9 talks about the weariness of human history repeating itself. And it says, what has been will be. And what has been done will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. There's this empty repetition. Nations rise up and they fall. New nations rise up and they fall. History repeats itself like that. We, we say that we need to learn from history so that it doesn't repeat itself. But the fact is that history still repeats itself. There is war and there is peace. There's war again and there's peace again. And, and there's nothing new under the sun. Now, some of you might say, well, look, I mean, Apple, they come out with a new iPhone. They come out with new Apple products every year. And there's certainly new technology, new advancements in that way. But notice what the preacher says in verse 10. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. Clearly, there are new inventions, there are new innovations, there are things that, that, that change in a relatively small way. But, but I think that the focus here is not so much on new inventions, but on our work under the sun. And, and from that standpoint, nothing has really changed. There, is, there are no new experiences. Every generation has new innovations. Every generation has new advances. But what Solomon is saying here is that from a broad perspective... Things are basically the same. This idea about not gaining anything and the weary repetition of life ends with this line about memory loss. That you might work really, really hard to try to achieve something, but no one remembers. And the author understood this because of how hard he worked to establish himself, how hard he worked to establish his name in Jerusalem. But the fact is that our name and our reputation are never secure, that, that you and I think a lot more about ourselves than other people do. We think a lot more about ourselves than what other people might think of us. And, but even if you think about me right now, you're not going to be thinking about me at 1 o'clock this afternoon, right? Uh, you're probably going to be thinking about the Bears game, or maybe you're going to be thinking about lunch or something else, something like that. There, There's this uh, th- this memory that does not last. I mean, we are not even lasting memories in each other's minds that, that people are soon forgotten. The department store Sears and Roebuck, it was founded in Chicago in 1892 by... Richard Sears and Alva Alva, uh, Roebuck. And we have a picture of these two guys that we're gonna put up on the screen. But I would bet that very few people even know much about these guys. And in fact, if you're anything like me, uh, this week was the first time that I ever remember seeing a picture of them. And yet they had stores all over the United States. and, And at one point they would even have this really thick, a uh, catalog that would come to your house where you could order everything that you might dream of. And um, the, the, the tallest building in all of Chicago was named the Sears Tower. Uh, times have changed though. Places like Amazon have come along and now they've been, they're being put out of business. Their stores are all closing up, and now the tower downtown is called the Willis Tower. It's not called the Sears Tower. And here are these two guys that were so influential in their time, and now people aren't even going to recognize the name Sears and Roebuck in just a a, a generation from now, I would bet. And, And that's true of all of us. I'm sorry to break it to you, but there is coming a day where you too are going to be forgotten people will forget all about you. And that's sometimes hard for us to imagine because sinfully, we put ourselves in the middle of life's story. How could life go on without the memory of me? But think about this. If the Lord gives you great grandchildren, it is likely that they will not remember your name. You, 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 You think about this, I mean, the, the names of your great-grandparents, do you know all of them? Do you know all eight of your great-grandparents? And do you know what they did for a living? I mean, maybe some of you do, but I would bet that most of you don't. Think about that. In just a few generations, your own descendants won't even remember you. You think, well, what, what should I do? I mean, should, should I just build a, mo- a monument for myself? Should I build some big uh, statue of myself so that I won't be forgotten? No, the point is not to live for yourself and for your own achievements because it's vanity. It is pointless. You will gain nothing in life if you live that way. The point is very clear here that people gain nothing from all of the toil and all of the work under the sun. But remember, there, that, that's how life is lived when we set our hope under the sun. The point of Ecclesiastes is not to make you cynical, it's not to depress you, but the whole point of this book is to call you and I to put our hope to, not in, in life under the sun, but in the one who rules over the sun. You see, if we're going to know and enjoy God properly, we need to see the emptiness of sin, the vanity of living life as if this is all that there is. We need to see how empty and how fleeting the promises of this world truly are so that we can see how bright and shining a future is if we trust in the Lord. The point of this book is to help us to see our need for Jesus Christ and how he is the one who brings real meaning to life. I want to end with this. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58 says this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Friends, for all of our work under the sun, we gain nothing. But in Christ, there is newness and there is a hope that will last for all of eternity. We don't set our eyes simply on what is under the sun, but on the one who rules over the sun. Let's pray.